Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. And tonight, we have an incredibly special guest. Long time coming. I, I texted this man, like, a definitely like a year ago. I was like, man, we got to talk about the Sixers and or the draft at, at some point. He's one of the best X's and O's guys I know. I worked with him at EV Hoops. From the rights to Ricky Sanchez, Mr. Mike O'Connor. Mike, good, how are man. you doing, my good man? It's good to talk to you. It's, uh, I appreciate the warm introduction. I can, I can indeed validate to the people that Nate did uh, scout with us. That Yeah, man, it's great to talk to you. It's funny you were mentioning how we connected like a year ago. And we were like, dude, we got to do the podcast. And I was like, yeah, for sure. And it feels like so many things just happen in the Sixers universe where like, I feel like none of us have breathed in like a year. And uh, it's strange. Now we, now we finally have some time. I'm, I'm glad we're able to connect here. Provide clarity to some questions that I had. And then you just wrote a piece for the rights to rickysanchez.com. By the way, they need to follow you because you, all your content, everything you do Thanks, for them man. is awesome. Yeah, so it's uh, my Twitter is moconnor underscore NBA. You can read me at Rights to Ricky Sanchez at the Odds Factory, and you can listen to me on WIP, 94.1 WIP here in Philly. So the 2020-21 Philadelphia 76er season began with such incredible optimism, sparked by a few trades, my favorite trade, my favorite offseason move, period. And I, I, I said this way before the season started was when they made that deal, getting Josh Richardson out and bringing in Seth Curry. I, I love that trade because I don't think people realize how good Seth Curry is. And if they didn't, uh, they do now after his playoff performance for, for Philly, being one of the two guys at times who was such a reliable offensive creator slash shooter for them. And that optimism came to a screeching halt during the playoffs and has made everyone rip their hair out and say a lot of swear words that we probably shouldn't repeat in full on this podcast throughout the entire length of the podcast. I'll try and keep my temper as PG 13 as possible, my good friend, but uh, myself included being very frustrated with some of the things that happened with the Philadelphia 76ers. Why don't we start big picture, Mike, and then, and then we'll kind of do a little bit more of a microscope on the playoffs. What well, what are your big picture thoughts from this Philadelphia 76ers season since you were so close to it um, almost a, a, as anybody else following and doing everything that you've been doing. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't, I don't think the long-term outlook is like completely bleak. I don't, I'm not like in despair about the long-term outlook, but they got to trade Ben and they got to get good value for him. Like they have to. Um, it's, it's a situation where, I think that the the scrutiny and just the, the internal and external pressure is just too high. Um, it is clear that they're asking Ben to be something that he is not. And, you know, there's just a, a dynamic at play where this is a guy who has immense value in the regular season, specifically in the first, like, 44 minutes of regular season games. But in the last four minutes of regular season games and in most of postseason games after the first round, it's a disaster as and that's to be to be clear that's if you're asking him to be your primary ball handler uh, and the Sixers do not have a path to acquiring a championship level primary ball handler without trading Ben and they just have to trade him um, again because they're asking him to be something he's not and because the internal and external pressure is so high at this point you just can't go into next season convincing yourself that anything's going to be different 
You just can't do that. Um, I don't see how Embiid could possibly trust him. I don't see how the organization could could get out from under this dark cloud. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of where they are. They they have to make that move, and you know, I think they'll get something of value back for him. But but ultimately, who knows? So I've been really high on Ben Simmons for the majority of his career. I certainly was when he was coming out of college, and I fully believed that he could be a, a six foot ten point guard primary ball handler initiator for your offense in the NBA. But eventually in a lot of people's minds, I guess yours included Mike, at some point that definitely took a turn. Um, when, when do you, when, when did you fully realize and accept in your mind that Ben probably wasn't going to be and shouldn't be the, the 76ers point guard? Was it from the start when they drafted him? Was it, at any point during one of the past few seasons, what when did that change happen in your mind? Because you're right, that is probably the biggest takeaway for for the Sixers moving forward. Yes, that's a good question. So for me, I think it it started. To be clear, I, I didn't totally believe this at the time. It started at the beginning of the 2018-19 season, where he comes off this incredible rookie year, and I was all in on him, and I thought he would improve. Uh, and he comes out that next year, and he's exactly the same guy. I mean, exactly the yeah. same guy. And it started in that moment to me to feel like, oh, this isn't good. Um, and I, I started to sour on him a little bit there. Then you start getting to the 2019 playoffs where they're going against the Raptors. He averages 11 a game, um, plays unbelievable defense on Kawhi but doesn't look like a guy uh, who is capable of being the primary ball handler in the half court. Jimmy Butler took over that duty. Um, but even then, even after that series, people were like, okay, Jimmy was there. You know, we, we don't know what it would have looked like with Ben handling the show. There was that off season where there's all of these videos and all these stories. Ben is shooting jumpers now. And I was like kind of wanting to believe it. I was like, okay, I, I, I just, I don't like doubting people. I don't like saying, oh no, he's going to be like this forever. So I kind of bought in not totally, but I was like, okay, I don't think it would have taken much. Like if he just had improved slightly as a shooter, I think he could have, you know, gotten to that place. Uh, but when it, I mean, I, it took me probably 10 games at most into the, into the 2019, 20 season where I was like, no, I'm fucking out on this guy. This this is I, <laughs> I do not believe in this. Like this is this is for him because I, like look, again, I'm I don't I'm not trying to just like crap on him personally, but like to me it was an incredibly weak move to put out all of those off-season videos, all of these workouts. Yeah. Um he's got all these, you know, all these Instagram posts. Everybody in training camp is talking about it. I remember being, I was at training camp uh, in 2019 and Jack McCaffrey asked him that question. He was like, Hey Ben, have you been shooting jump shots in these, in these, uh, like in these practices? And Ben gave him the most snarky answer ever. He was like, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a basketball player. Of course I shoot jump shots. Of course. And he was like, well, you, you haven't taken them in regular season games. Like, like, have you been shooting these? And he was like, yeah, I don't shoot, but I'm still an all-star. And that like that like just that whole attitude coming through i think was was really bad 
Um, and I, that was when I, I started to really sour on him as a player. Then you get to the bubble and there's another, it's chapter two of, of Ben is actually be, going to become a jump shooter. He puts out a video on his YouTube channel of him shooting jump shots. And somebody, I forget who he was talking to, but somebody's like, man, you, you're a decent shooter. You should really shoot more. And he just goes, Orlando. That was all he said. He said, Orlando. And, uh, and he goes to the bubble and I think attempted one three or two, a couple of threes and barely shot. And then the entire next season doesn't shoot at all. And um, it's just, it started, you know, it started again in 2018 after I saw no improvement from him. And each subsequent chapter chapter was just like further confirmation of this guy is not going to improve in a meaningful way on the offensive end of the floor. And if given that, I don't think he can be the primary ball handler on a championship team. So here's, here's like the worst thing for me about Ben Simmons, because I've never been one of these truthers that, has wanted to shove the notion down his throat that he's needed to be this awesome jump shooter to be like the second best player on a championship team. But what he does need to do is he needs to attack and be in attack mode and be aggressive getting downhill. When he's in transition, he needs to use his speed where he's arguably one of the fastest players from end to end with the ball in his hands in the entire NBA and just go past people and just look to score in those transition opportunities. And at some point, well, actually, re really at all points, like he's he's never remained in full attack mode for, for like a full 48-minute game. Like that just has not happened with him. I don't understand it. But if if he was that guy, if if he if that was the kind of mindset that he played with, I don't think everyone would be shoving the jump shot thing down his throat as much as they they may be and you can feel free to to disagree with me on that mike because you're you're the much better x's and o's guy than i am and why that changes an offense so much if he is able to shoot a jump shot but that was like the one thing that i always look for from him that we we never got and it was even more glaring obviously in this playoff stretch but like correct me if i'm wrong like he's been like that his, his entire career like we could be yelling at a tv screen attack 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 and for whatever reason he just slows down midway in a transition break and he just stops and brings the offense to a halt whether that's because he wants to wait for Embiid to get down the floor and they want to set something up in the half court whether he just doesn't believe in himself like ultimately going all the way and finishing a play all the time like I, I, do you have any other input on that because like I, I i really don't have an explanation for it at this point it's gotten a little ridiculous no you're absolutely right and and you're definitely spot on that he's always been that way like this was a huge talking point when he was at lsu it was like why isn't he more aggressive like why like it's i forget what he averaged at lsu but there were just a lot of times where you felt like he should be you know exerting his will on the game and he's not um so that, that that's kind of always been a part of him um but the other thing is that he would also need to have the willingness or the awareness or some combination of the two to say all right, if I'm not going to be that, if I'm not going to do those things, then I can't be the, the primary ball handler. And he has said on numerous occasions that he thinks he's a point guard. Um, you know, he has expressed his displeasure in, in that Toronto series about being in the dunker spot too much. And it's like, well, well, hang on. If you're not going to, if you're not going to shoot jump shots and you're not going to attack, attack, attack on every possession, then what, what are you going to do? Like, what, yep. what, what are you supposed to do? Um, so that's that I think it's some combination of not having the aggression and not and then also not having the 
the willingness and the the awareness to say, all right, if I don't want to be, you know, just like barreling into the rim, like, like Giannis in the half court, like, then I can't be the primary guy. Um, and there's also, you know, you mentioned briefly, you touched on the jump shooting thing. And this kind of drives me nuts because it's people talk all the time about, well, why should he shoot anyway? Because he's only going to shoot 32% or whatever it is. And um, that's not People aren't going to guard him or whatever. And it's like, what you, what you are not understanding is, is the number of times that Ben will catch the ball wide open, like, like around the perimeter with six seconds left on the shot clock. And it's like, no, the, the best shot in that circumstance is a Ben Simmons three-pointer. It's, it's not just about, you can't look at that in totally in a vacuum of like, well, he shoots 32%. So that's, that's bad offense. It's like there are certain times where the defense is just going to funnel you into that shot and you kind of have to. And I wrote this article like a year ago about, you know, all the incremental steps of, of the value of improving as a shooter, right? And like I compared it to like Giannis and Giannis does this. When you leave him wide open with five seconds on the shot clock, he will shoot a three. And guess what? He's going to make some of them. And then you get, to, I, I look, you know, kind of compared up the list of shooters. Like then you look at like a Pascal Siakam who like teams, didn't guard in the playoffs two years ago, but he still hit a bunch of shots and made them pay, right? And occasionally yep. they would close out to him, and occasionally he could beat that and, and attack the rim. Like you gain incremental value with each little bit of improvement. It's not this all or nothing, like, well, he's not shooting, he's not going to shoot 40%, so there's no point. That's not how it works. There is this little incremental improvement. So sorry I've kind of taken your point sideways, but I do agree with what you're saying. No, that's that's exactly what I wanted to hear, my man. This is why I have you on because you're 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 one of the experts. And I think the the other thing that goes into shooting the basketball, I'm, I'm about to bring up a classic Evie Hoops point right here because we used to sit around and talk about some of this all the time when it was about touch, right? The a player's natural touch. How does the ball come off of his hands? What, what does it look like when he's going up for a layup or, or, or whatever hook kind of hook shot or, or a little floater around the basket? What does that ball look like when it comes off his hand? How is it going in the basket? Is it rattling around? Is it a smooth swoosh? Ben Simmons, for a guy his size, has some of the worst natural touch I think I've seen. And, and people, people don't talk about that, but people who watch Ben Simmons enough, I, I feel like you're probably in that camp with me. His, his touch... It is it is awful on some of these easy shots that he gets wide open. Do you think that that plays into some of his confidence too? That maybe he doesn't want to step away and try to shoot because that he he he's he'll be like five feet from the basket and he can't even see some of those shots go in sometimes. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I mean, if you're not someone with good touch and um, you know, like you probably it just shooting just feels a little bit more cumbersome. You know, like even there are big guys like like Embiid has great touch right and like so it probably when he was like first starting to become a jump shooter he probably felt a lot more comfortable just like came more naturally to him whereas Ben like if you don't feel comfortable with like push shots around the rim you're not going to feel comfortable expanding your range right so yeah I, I mean I think that's definitely a good point um I mean there there are I'm sure someone could name a bunch of guys who <laughs> don't have the best touch who are able to shoot jumpers at a reasonable clip but yep um, but I, I think that's a good point, yeah. So looking at Ben Simmons' overall game, because we're going to get into the article that you wrote about some some Ben Simmons trades, some theoretical Ben Simmons trades in a second. But like just just looking at, at, at Ben, 
how can he possibly recuperate some of his offensive value, whether for whatever reason he's in Philadelphia next year, whether he's somewhere else? Because like you, you look at some of the numbers from this year, and I'll read them to my audience. So I have, I have, I have a good old synergy page pulled up right here. This is this is regular season and playoffs. So Ben was in the thirty seventh percentile in total offense. Um, obviously, his spot up numbers aren't going to be good. He's in the twenty sixth percentile in spot ups. This number is abysmal in the 20, 28th percentile in pick and roll scoring out of the pick and roll sets as a ball handler. And then the worst one out of all of them is he, he's supposed to be this transition beast. He was in the 26th percentile scoring and transition sets. So like, I, I, I finally remember Mike, an article that, that you put out that you, and you've said this before too, at different points, you've talked about how you don't want, Ben Simmons to be a post player. You don't want Doc to go to him in the post because you don't think he's a good post player. And those numbers aren't good either. He he's not efficient as a role man. Like I'm just really struggling to figure out how he recuperates his offensive value and where he goes from here if he doesn't for some reason miraculously come around on his jump shooting. Yeah. No, so I mean you're absolutely right. Um if he does stay in Philly. I think the path to him recuperating some of his value is just being more aggressive attacking the rim and being willing to be embarrassed at the free throw line. Like that's really what it is. I'm not even asking, I'm not even saying like improve, you know, become a 70% free throw shooter. No, I'm just saying be willing to be embarrassed because guess what? Giannis is willing to be embarrassed. Giannis airballs. I feel like Giannis airballs like five free throws a week. It's like, <laughs> he doesn't care. He doesn't care. And that is the mentality that Ben needs to have. And that is what, if you see that next year, again, I, I don't think he'll be in Philly, but if he is, I think a team could see that and be like, okay, progress. Like that is really what we need to see from Ben in terms of if he's going to recuperate value is a difference in his mentality. And, you know, it's, it's a touchy subject because there's, I think, you know, and Ben has even said like, there's, mental aspects to his struggles and I don't pretend to have the answers as to how to overcome that for him I, I, I don't I don't know the guy um, but it is clear that you know any team that is considering trading for him will factor in to their decision of how they value him how likely is this guy to have some sort of a mental breakthrough even even like a little bit like I said like just be more aggressive get to the free throw line more that sort of stuff so my biggest question around Ben Simmons and the Sixers for years, and, and I want your X's and O's best Mike O'Connor answer you can possibly give me to, the, to this question, but why on God's green earth is practicing and putting in place a pick and roll system with Ben and Joel like absolutely non-existent for, for their entire length of their careers together at this point? Why? Why do you think it hasn't happened? If, if, if you agree that it shouldn't happen, why shouldn't it happen at all? This is just something that I've never gotten a really good answer to or been able to come up with one on my own. Because I think when I think about it more and more on my own, the more I come around to the fact that it should be happening. And it's something that if it works, it could be one of those like crazy pick and roll combinations that could destroy the league. Yeah, I mean, so the reason as to why it has not happened is first off because Brett Brown was never, he's never been and probably never will be a big pick and roll guy. Um, he's all about dribble handoffs. He does not like to run a lot of spread pick and roll. 
Um, and I also don't think that it's, it's this great thing to be unlocked. I mean, at the end of the day, Joel's not a great role, man. And Ben's not a great pick and roll ball handler. A lot of the stuff that they do run with those two is like the snug pick and rolls or like around the logo. Some people call them logo pick and rolls. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like we were talking about with Simmons's touch, like those types of plays end up in like a, a Simmons, like sweeping running hook. And it's like, that's not a good shot. You know, that's, with with his touch and that sort of thing, I mean, if you were more willing again to like barrel into guys and draw fouls, it could be could be a lot better. But um, yeah, I mean, I just when you think about everything that goes into a good pick and roll combination, right? It's like from a big man, you're gonna want you're gonna want like a really quick athletic guy who can get behind the uh, the opposing big man, or a guy who's like a really sweet shooter who can uh, who can run like pick and pops and that sort of thing. And Embiid is kind of neither of those. He's closer to being a good shooter. I mean, you think about like what makes a, a good pick and roll ball handler. It's like really good threat to pull up uh, or like really good at drawing fouls and finishing around guys at the rim. And Simmons is neither of those things. So I don't know. I just, I don't see it. I mean, is there something like, is there something you feel like that could be unlocked there? Or, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think that they're like, I don't think they were ever destined to be like a great pick and roll combination. I just think the 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 idea of a seven foot plus enormous Joel Embiid catching somebody on a screen where if if the other guy on defense in that dance isn't quick enough to pick up on Ben, if Ben's in attack mode and aggressive, if he he can get a step on somebody at that point, if you're if you're behind Simmons, you're not going to get in front of him if he's actually attacking downhill because he is also an incredibly large man. You can question his handle in some of those situations but i think ideally that like if ben's aggressive i think that that could be a play type that unlocks so much of everything else that ben does well not even talking about um finishing around the basket because you and i agree about his struggles there but like his best attribute is creating three-point shots for for other people and if he's actually willing to attack as you mentioned mike be willing to barrel into the defense draw fouls um, make something happen around the basket at whatever cost, and then the defense has to pay more attention there. Eventually, he's drawing another helper, and then he's unlocking somebody in the corner or on the wing, and that's a much easier passer pass for somebody to make who has the vision at six ten than it is for like a smaller guard, even in those situations. So, like, I've always thought that like that was to me one of the better ways to get those two to work together and unlock some of the offense that I think has been dormant for so many years. And, and, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe if you have another counterpoint to, to that, like that, that's how I have envisioned it. Cause I'm still under the belief that if Simmons is in attack mode and aggressive, he's bigger and faster than the majority of the other defensive players that he's going up against generally every single night. So that that's just yeah. been my belief. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It's just that Ben has to establish something or other, uh, like like as a threat that's going to make defenses guard him in a slightly different way, or like just have more fear. Like it's either got to be a jump shot or a or a floater or just like a, an increased willingness to attack the rim where where teams feel like they have to where he can like engage, uh, you know, the big man and then get passes off to Joel where teams feel like they have to like sink down and give more help. You know what's funny is uh. If you if you go back and watch, if anybody is like has like way too much time on their hands, I would encourage them to do this. If you go back and watch the first two games that they played against the Pacers this year, one of them might have been a, a preseason game, um, but the first two games they played against the Pacers, 
Nate Bjorkman, who I, I don't know what the hell he was thinking, but he went, he had his guards go over on over the screen on every Ben Simmons pick and roll, which is how you would defend it. If Ben could shoot, right? Like that's like, he just went straight drop coverage on Ben as a pick and roll ball handler. And Ben was just like carving it up. And there were a couple passes he made where it's like, it's like goddamn Luca on steroids, man, where it's like he, he like Ben gets a screen, you know, starts attacking downhill, help sinks in from the weak side. Boom. Passed like, bullet pass to shake Milton in the corner for a three. And I watched those games and I was like, first off, what the hell is Nate Bjorkman doing? Second off, this is like an incredible preview of what this dude could do if he ever established a jump, a jump shot, because it's like, he is unguardable when yep. you, when you, when he forces defenses to guard him like that and the help starts coming from the weak side. I mean, he can just pick it apart and you watch those games, man. And I, I swear, it's just like, that that is like an alternate reality where Ben Simmons could shoot, and it's amazing. Yeah, it's it, man, it, it's it depresses me though when we think about yeah. stuff like that because it's like what what could have been with with Ben Simmons, what still could be. I, I think you and I are both sour on some of those at points right now, and, and I agree. Like I, I'm, I've rooted for him so hard up to now, where it's just like. What else? What else are you gonna do, man? Like, like I'm, well, I'm out of options. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? I've been asking people this for a while, and I haven't heard an answer that satisfies me. So maybe you could help. All right. If you gave Ben Simmons truth serum and asked him why he doesn't shoot jump shots, what do you think he would say? Oh my god. Um. So I think I think the perfectionist answer that you've probably heard too many times mm -hmm. and, and and i'm probably going to regurgitate a little bit of that 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 has to play a factor into it if whether that's the entire answer whether it's part of the answer it has to be at least part of the answer because he's put out those videos we've seen him take those jump shots before it's not like he literally can't hit a jump shot at all Right, it's not like mm -hmm. he he can't do it. So I think that that's definitely part of the answer. But I think the other the other part of the answer really could be the point that I brought up to you not not that long ago. Here was that I I don't know if he fully believes in, in his own touch and his own ability to make those shots on a consistent yeah. basis. And then that definitely feeds into well, okay, if I'm not going to hit these shots at a certain level at the level that I want to, then maybe it's best if I just don't take them whatsoever. But that that's like one part to the equation is why he won't take jump shots, but why he won't dunk a basketball when the opportunity <laughs> is right there in front of him. Like that, that's a whole different psychological can of worms that I can't really open up. So maybe I disappointed you again with the answer, but I feel like those <laughs> two parts have to be part of that equation. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, I think if you were given truth serum and you asked him that question, he would just say like, I can't make them. I can't make them. I think he just truly doesn't believe in his in his jump shot. I think that's what it comes down to. There are other the other, you know, thing that people bring up in addition to like the perfectionist thing is like he's he's like, "Well, I'm not," he would say like, "I'm not that great at them and I don't need to shoot them." Which I also think to some extent he believes. He he just doesn't think he needs to to shoot to be great. And like 
there is a case that he doesn't like what we were talking about earlier, all that other stuff, like his touch and being more aggressive and so on and so forth. But yeah, man, I, I have, I have no idea ultimately. Yeah. If you don't feel the need to shoot him to, to, to be great, fine. Then do what else you can do and get downhill, which you can do virtually at any, any time you want in the game. Almost mm-hmm. he can get downhill and get to the basket. Like the, he, he doesn't have an excuse to not be aggressive and not be putting up 20 plus points per game because he, if he would have put up like 12 to 15 more points per game in some of those Atlanta Hawks games, like they would have won and they, they could have beaten the Hawks in like five games. And instead here we are, the Sixers lose in seven games. And the counter argument that people want to give me is that, well, he, he's a passer. He's a playmaker. He creates so many other shots for, for everybody else. And like, yeah, nobody's asking him to not go out there and get 12 or 13 assists per game. Nobody's asking him to do that. If he would just take like three, four, five more of those offensive opportunities he had to drive the fucking basketball, then he would have been putting more points on the board, and those probably would have been the differences in them winning those games. Like, is that is that the same like angry curmudgeon response you want to give some of those people that say that? Oh, absolutely, man. I, I can't stand that shit. When people are like, like dude we all get it like he creates a lot of threes for other people and he's awesome on defense we all love that about him it's it's like awesome you know who else does that is like draymond green and it's like it's like 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 where is he then i like what what where does he rank in the league what's his identity all that stuff like we all agree that it's great that he creates threes for other people and it's great that he plays incredible defense but like if we are talking about a guy who makes $30 million a year and is expected to be your lead ball handler and campaigns publicly and privately to be the point guard, like, like do you see where it's not heading up? Like, right? Like, it, he's got to do more than that. He's got to do more than that. So. He has to. There's, 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 there's no excuses for Ben Simmons in the playoffs. Total, total offensive percentile to be in the, in, in the 30th percentile. There, there's no excuse for that. There's absolutely none. He's being paid like the second best player on the team. So act like it, act like it, play like it. And the fact that there's something more broken there that you and I may never have an answer to. It's sad. It's depressing. But ultimately the whole reason why you wrote this column that you did, Mike, for the rights to Ricky Sanchez is because you believe that it's time to move on. And I'm right there with you. I don't know when the perfect time is going to be to make a trade. I guess it all depends on who's going to give up the best offer at what time. But I, I, I agree. Things things need to be explored. We we can't be wasting. But what hurts me the most is that Joel was playing on a torn meniscus and people want to rip apart some of Joel Embiid's second half performances in some of those playoff games. What what actually, yeah, that's a great question. What what what's your opinion on some of his like, how much blame do you lay at the feet of Joel Embiid for, for the Hawks um, ultimately beating them in the playoffs? Um, I mean, it's, it's hard to know how much of, like, his horrible game four was injury-related. Um, I really don't know. Clearly, Embiid was, like, a step below what he was um, in, the, in the regular season. Um, I can't I, – I don't have, you know I, – I don't have the energy to get too – riled up about him because again he was injured and he still put up big numbers and and all that type of stuff uh blowing a a layup to win the game in game four probably should be talked about a little more probably should and he he was he was bad he was really bad in that game um i do think that 
for as much as he might have taken a step back on offense in that series, he was amazing on defense. He yep. he was really, really good uh, at protecting the rim. I mean, like I, I would argue that he had much more of a defensive impact than Ben did in that series. Here's here here's my whole thought about Joel Embiid, and, and and I went at some of the the naysayers in private who wanted to say that a lot more of the blame should also be at Joel Embiid's feet. First of all, the fact that he played on a torn meniscus the way that he did, I don't think people realize how impressive that is. Mm-hmm. And you you also mentioned defensive impact, Mike. Not only did he have to do everything for his team offensively, but especially if Ben wasn't on the floor, he's quite literally doing everything defensively for that team as well. So that man at that size carrying that load, doing so much on both ends on a bad knee is damn impressive. So I don't want to lay too much blame at his feet. The other thing you did, right. He had, he, he had a, a, a pretty bad to, to his standards game four, but in game five, I was at that game. He literally handed his team that game on a silver platter mm-hmm. after three quarters and said, Listen, guys, he could he could have said this. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He probably didn't. But he could have said, listen, guys, I've given everything that I have. These three quarters were up by 18 points. Just don't fucking blow it. Just do whatever you have to do to get off the floor with a W. And let's go close this thing out in Atlanta in game six. And they completely let him down. And then obviously they did more of the same in game seven when he had that awesome first quarter performance and then everything just kind of went to shit after that. So like at some point, like, yeah, Joel Embiid deserves a portion of the blame because he's the main star of the team. He's the face of the franchise. But I think that everyone else let him down so hard, given the circumstances he was playing under in that playoff series. And it's why I think he needs, he he just, he needs a better co-pilot at this point. And that's why we have to explore some of these trades and, um, before we get into some specifics of the trades, I, I want to ask you about one name that pops up in multiple of these deals that you proposed, Mike, someone who fell out of Doc's rotation for pretty much the majority of the season. And I never quite understood why. Maybe you have some insight. Mr. Mr. Shake Milton, I, I, I'm disappointed that he's in some of these trades, but at the same time, if, if Doc doesn't value him, as a basketball player, then maybe he's an easier throw in than, than not. What are, what are some of your shake Milton thoughts as you reflect on this past season? So shake obviously had a really up and down year. Um, I think that the, the shake Milton thing is incredibly simple when he's hitting pull up jump shots, specifically pull up threes. The dude is like unguardable. And if you look back to game two against the Hawks, that's exactly what he did. He just came in. He's just firing away from three. And the Hawks are like, we don't know how to guard this guy. Yep. And that, it, it's the same thing that happened against the Clippers in that 39-point game last season. Um, when Shake is hitting those shots, he's incredible. But it's very strange how it just like disappears for prolonged stretches. He won't even take pull-up threes for, for long stretches. So, And I think he's an incredible shooter. I don't know why he doesn't shoot more. Um, but I don't know, man. It's, he's just got to get back into that rhythm. He's got to establish, you know, more of a comfort level because I really think he has improved as a a shot creator over the yep. past, even just the past year. Like he's he really improved his ability to draw fouls, you know, floaters, off balance finishes, that sort of stuff. Like he has a bag. Like he he can he can get a shot for himself. It's just it's all going to come down to like is he a very very good 
pull-up jump shooter or is he like only good at it and like doesn't take as many as he should that, that's really all it's going to come down to so shake's not in the first trade that you put on the table the the trade that you mark as a definitive yes which for my audience if you haven't read the piece so the portland trailblazers would get ben simmons matisse Thybul, tyrese maxey the 2021 first round pick which is the 28th pick overall and two unprotected picks in 2023 and 2027, which would bring back Damian Lillard and Nasir Little, the, the offer that Mike has deemed the absolute motherload offer. <laughs> so we were talking about um, how you don't think that Joel Embiid has proven himself to be one of the best role man options in the NBA, but what's so fascinating about that trade is Damian Lillard is arguably the best pick and role point guard in the NBA. If not, he's certainly on a short list of like the top three. And that's something that he would definitely want to bring to the offense. And I think if that trade for, for by some miracle in the sky actually happened, I think that doc would have to accommodate some of those requests and definitely install a lot more pick and roll offense between him and Joel. So is that the best possible outcome that you think can, can happen for the Sixers and maybe touch on that, what that pick and roll relationship would look like a little bit. So, yeah. So this trade, um, I think would be an amazing, amazing outcome. Uh, the only scenario that I think people have brought up, uh, I actually don't remember if I thought of this or if someone else did, but I've been talking about it with so many people. I, it's just escaped my mind. <laughs> um, but the, the scenario would be that you do like the second trade I, I laid out, which is for Zach Levine which is basically just Simmons, you know, it's, it's, it's Simmons and shake. And then a couple of picks are like less stuff than you would trade for Damian Lillard, obviously. And then people have discussed a second trade in addition to the Levine one, where you trade basically the rest of the stuff from the Lillard trade for Kyle Lowry. So that would mean that they would go into next year with Kyle Lowry, Zach Levine, presumably Danny green, Tobias Harris and Joel Embiid, which I think would be awesome. Like, I mean, that that's like, one could argue that that's a better team than like Dame and Joel and like nobody else. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, the, the Dame thing though, I, I, I mean, I, I would do that in a heartbeat. I wouldn't think twice about it. Um, and the, the, you know, it would be a little bit tough to fill out the rest of that roster in year one. I do think that they would still contend. And the important thing to remember is that it's not a one year deal. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Daryl Morey, you give him three years, he will build a championship team around those two guys. Um, but yeah, in terms of their specific chemistry together, I, I think that they would they would be awesome. Um, I, again, I, I like Joel's not this like unbelievable role man that that Dame can that like can unlock Dame, but I don't think Dame really needs that. I think that MB just being good enough to like if teams blitz him, he can just like you know pocket pass to Embiid, and Embiid's so good at from seventeen feet, like he'll just drain those all day. Um, so I do think Embiid has enough of a threat as a pick and pop guy to to break those coverages, and yeah, I mean they would be they would be amazing together, man. I, I really think they would win a championship. It, it's 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 really funny because you you mentioned Joel Embiid being almost automatic as it seems nowadays from like seventeen feet and in, which to me is it, it's remarkable. It's almost like I I did I did multiple preview pods at the beginning of the NBA season and when it was my turn to talk about the 76ers. I, I laid out 
everything that I've disliked about Joel Embiid's game over the past few years, and it's like all of those things evaporated, like right up until some of the last moments in, in that playoff series. But like we like we have talked about at length now, he was hurt, and I'm not going to hold everything against him. But like he literally improved every facet of his game that I always had an issue with, and it was it was really incredible to watch him this season. But yeah, Dame Dame and Joel Embiid together. I mean that I love Dame. A shout out to Dame Doll. I love him so much that that would warm my heart if he was ultimately brought to to Philly. And if there's anybody who could pull off a slew of deals as you've laid out here, we thank God every day for Daryl Morey <laughs> around these parts. That's for sure. And I I knew that Daryl was coming back and firing on all cylinders when he pulled off that that Seth Curry deal. So that's that that also really warmed my heart. Like I said, so. The, the the second scenario that you laid out, the one that you just laid out, where the 76ers can pull two separate deals and bring in Zach Levine and Kyle Lowry, that is fascinating because mm-hmm. that gives that gives them not only one guy in the backcourt who can get to their own shot at virtually any point, but you can make the argument that Kyle Lowry can pretty much still do the same thing or find enough crafty ways. To, to get into some mid-range looks or even if he even if on some possessions he's just a, a, an open spot up three-point guy like obviously he can still do that in, in spades but talk to me mike about your 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 have you always been a zach levine guy i don't know if you've always been a zach levine guy because i can tell you that i have i i love zach levine from when he was coming out in the draft and i thought that he was going to be a, a dynamite player in, in the nba and it took him it took him a little bit to, to pick it up uh, pick up different things on offense, but talk to me about Zach Levine, how you've come around on his game, and, and why you think that he's he could be arguably the next best option for for the 76ers to target. Uh, so I, I haven't always been a huge fan of his. I would say in the past like couple of years, maybe two or three years, I've he's really grown on me. Um, the dude has it's so cliche to say this about guys. He's truly gotten better every year he's been in the league, and everything you hear about him, he's like an incredible worker. Um, and you know, I mean, I just look at like you watch him play, you look at the numbers and there's this narrative about him that he is this empty stats guy. And it's like, the math literally doesn't check out (laughs) when you scored 27 a game on 63% true shooting that, that, that cannot possibly be empty. Right. Like, um, it, it, it obviously says something that he's not a guy who like single-handedly makes you a winning team right but like i definitely think that the scoring is completely legit uh i think he would look amazing on a contending team uh i I think they should the sixers should be thrilled if they can get him yeah i just don't think i just i personally and and i know that when when you were on with spike on on the podcast mike you kind of laid out your your argument as to why you think chicago would do it I I'm I kind of agree with Spike. I'm under the impression that I don't really see a scenario in which Chicago would do it. So in case my audience hasn't listened to that podcast, why don't you lay out your case that you kind of make here as to why you think there's a chance Chicago could could pull off a trade and and, and bring in Ben for for Zach? So um, the 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 first part of it is that Levine is on an expiring deal, and it is quite possible that either he or the Bulls probably more likely Zach would say, I'm not sure about this long-term, but maybe the bulls could also say, Hey, you know, we've had this guy on our team for, for, what is it? Three years now. I think maybe four years. Um, we haven't gone anywhere. Like we, we, 
we just kind of want to change. That happens a lot in the NBA. I think people discredit yeah. how much, like it, it just things kind of get stale, and you're like, I've we've had this guy for a while, and nothing has happened. Like, let's just kind of move off of him. Um, it's not like I mean I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like an example. The first one that came to my mind was was Andre Iguodala. Like this, like back in the day with the Sixers, they no, there was no impetus for them to trade him. They were just kind of like he's been here for so long and we've been the same exact team. Like, ah, I guess we'll trade him for Andrew Bynum. Like that's, it just, it happens a lot in the NBA. Right. So that is, that is a part of it. Another part of it is that they could possibly feel like they have the infrastructure for Ben Simmons to really succeed there. Right. Like Ben, uh, Ben is someone who needs a stretch five next to him. Nick Vucevic takes six threes a game. Like that, that is the type of guy you need next to him. They maybe think Kobe White could really be a player. They could look at Patrick Williams on the wing and say, wow, we pair Ben and Patrick Williams and the rest of the guys. We could really have a great defense. Uh, and, and, you know, let's let's not forget this element of it. Mark Eversley, who used to be high up in the Sixers front office, is now in Chicago. Yep. And, I, look, I don't know for sure that he's a big Ben Simmons fan, but I know that during his tenure they made a lot of decisions that made Ben Simmons happy, right? Like, um, so so – who knows? Um, I mean, I, I definitely think there's a scenario where they would do that. The other element that I mentioned to Spike is just that, like, in that deal, I include Shake Milton and two first-round picks. And it's possible that the Bulls, again, are, are, like, maybe not at the point where they're, like, we're tired of Levine. But if they're getting there and they're like, well, we can get a dude who we think may be just as good. And we're also getting good young player and two first-round picks. Let's do that. I agree with you, and the outcome would be phenomenal for Philadelphia if they pulled off some miracle trade for any one of the three of Damian Lillard, Zach Levine, or Bradley Beal, giving up, I, I guess at the end of the day, whatever you would have to give up to get any one of those three deals done. I think ultimately I would be on board because of the giant leap in my mind that Joel Embiid took this year. I don't think you can waste any more time, but... The trade that I think can happen, I think everybody agrees that it that it probably can happen, although I'm going to be honest with you, Mike. There was a point during that playoff series where I'm literally like, I was at LA Fitness just like shooting around. I was listening to another podcast, and I was just thinking about like, holy shit, can, can a Ben Simmons for CJ McCollum trade even happen anymore? Mm-hmm. Like, what, like, why does Portland necessarily want to do that deal? It's like they're watching all the same basketball that we are. And CJ McCollum, and, and and I'll let you defend them a little bit too, Mike. Like CJ McCollum is a damn good basketball player. And if people don't think that he's a damn good basketball player, then they haven't been watching Portland closely enough, especially over the last few years. Quite quite frankly, the entire the entire time that man's been in the NBA, he's done nothing but tear it up on multiple fronts. So you have this trade in a tier that you do it, but it's not cause for celebration, which breaks my heart a little bit because I love CJ McCollum. So the deal would be Ben Simmons, shake 2021 second round pick for CJ McCollum and Robert Covington. So I guess, A, Mike, do, do you think that Ben Simmons is definitely valued by the Portland Trailblazers to even do a deal for McCollum at this point? And then B, what what would make you really happy about this trade? But you mentioned some pushback as well in it. Like you say, it's not cause for celebration. Kind of explain that trade a little bit to me and my audience in your eyes. Yeah, sure. So, all right, two two reasons why Portland would do it, all right? 
the first is that it is a very not well-kept secret that Portland has wanted Draymond Green for a long time. They've wanted him really badly. And the reason is very clear because they have two good pick and roll guards. They've had issues with the, with teams blitzing them in the past. They remember that new Orleans playoff series and having a dude who can handle the short roll like that would be, would be awesome. Right. Nurkic has gotten a lot better at it, but having a dude like Draymond or presumably they would think a dude like Ben would all but eliminate that as being a problem, right? You put Dame in a pick and roll combination with Ben, Ben is going to carve up defenses on the short roll. The other thing that, I, you know what, we, we do this, we do this every year, Nate, and you will remember that, uh, and it's I, like, I'm gonna, I'm about to like, expose and embarrass us. Okay, I hope that's all right. That's um, perfectly fine with me, man. Three years ago, around this time, we were putting the finishing touches on our 2018 draft guide. And we all we had, we'd all like in our in our final final meetings we had like had a bunch of conversations that kind of soured us on Trey Young and a big focus of those conversations was how does this dude succeed in the playoffs with his size our team's going to be able to blitz him our, our team's going to be able to just hunt him every possession on defense and first off we were wrong but even if we had been right what we didn't realize was, was that we were making the mistake of like over fixating on the playoffs when there is a whole 82 game season that we were ignoring, right? Like we didn't like, it didn't like cross our mind for one second during those last meetings that like, Oh, Trey young is one of like two or three dudes in this entire draft who you could presumably build an entire offensive system around and win a lot of games in a regular season. Right? Like, like put the playoffs completely to the side and he's, he's, eliminated all of our concerns and doubts about that but let's just like look at the regular season we didn't consider that nearly enough and people are doing the same exact thing with ben simmons right now and it makes a ton of sense it, it's the reason he can't be in philly anymore because we know the train wreck that's coming in the second round of the playoffs right we know yep. that but there are plenty of other teams who would kill to be the number one seed in the, in the Eastern Conference or who would kill to have Ben Simmons's contributions in the regular season, even knowing that he's a disaster in the playoffs, right? Like, no one can disagree with that. And I think Portland would look at it and be like, okay, we know what Ben is in the regular season. Any improvement we get from there is gravy. We have a dude in Damian Lillard who can carry our offense single-handedly in the postseason. Like, what's the downside? You know, like, that's probably the way they'll look at it. I think that's the way a lot of other teams will look at it. Again, for Philly, it's it's the reason you have to trade him because we've seen this movie 50 times and we're still asking him to be the dude that carries the load in the postseason. And another team will look at it and say, he's either going to improve or we just won't ask him to be that guy. And a team like Portland, who in this hypothetical would still have Dame, they wouldn't have to ask him to be that guy. Man, my my the amount of crow that I've had to eat on Trey Young, I feel like I've had <laughs> to line up at a buffet like three times over and eat my absolute fill of crow because yeah. that man has eviscerated almost every single person in his path. And had he not gotten hurt in that series against the Bucks, that there is a really strong possibility that they could have went to the finals. Like that that's mm -hmm. not that's not an exaggeration. That's how good 
Trey Young has been. So yeah, I, I I've eaten all the crow. I'm I'm perfectly fine throwing my name in the mud on that one. I got that wrong, but that that's a, I, too, I, I, I I say this all the time. It's like and, and, and you can attest to this because you've seen some of my evaluations. It's like generally like you and I have hit on like a right a, a lot of right stuff when it comes to evaluating prospects. But at least to me, I feel like it's either I'm going to hit on it or if I miss, like I miss really badly. <laughs> I just feel like there's no in between with it what, what, whatsoever. But um, yeah, you, you summed up, you summed that up perfectly. And, and I would love to have CJ McCollum back in a trade, not only because he's a dead eye shooter, three level scorer. Yeah. His passing, he had like a, a three to one or like a little over a three to one assist to turnover ratio this year. Granted he's in more limited playmaking capacities because they want the ball in Dame's hands. For the majority of those opportunities but like when 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 cj mccollum is given the keys to to run the show if dame's out of the game completely or he's he's like they have cj be like the backup point guard running like the second units like he's a pretty good point guard so it's like i don't understand this whole notion that like cj mccollum couldn't be somebody that comes in and and is as valuable to the 76ers as some of the other names we talked about like is cj mccollum as good of a player as Zach Levine, Bradley Bill, or Damon Lillard, like in a vacuum, probably not. But I think given what he does so well and how he would mesh with Embiid, I think he could ultimately end up being just as valuable. And that's the reason why I think that I it's not that I wouldn't necessarily have a Levine or a Beal trade ahead of the McCollum deal, but I just don't. I personally just didn't think that those trades would be possible. You laid out a very good case for the Levine trade to happen. That's why I think in my mind, I came into this with the McCollum deal being like second, like, okay, if Dame's completely off the table, we can't do it. Then we better pivot and and go get CJ McCollum. At least I personally would much rather have CJ McCollum than like the reported trade that was out there for like Brogdon and a first round pick. I think McCollum is, is a much better player than Brogdon. I don't know where you stand on that argument. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, and I think that, you know, like a lot of, you know, a lot of what you're saying is, is, is right. That CJ is exactly the guy that they need. They need a guy who you can give the ball to late in the game, who can create a shot for himself. And as much as there are other players in the NBA who are objectively better, like I, I think you could easily make the case that like Shea Gilgis Alexander is not only more valuable as an asset, but as a better basketball player right now, just given his defense and his playmaking and all of that stuff. But on this particular team with this exact need, CJ fills that better, right? Like at, at the end of a game to just get a shot, that is the guy that you need. And Shea's not quite there. I don't know that he will get there. Again, Shea is better at other things. Um, but for a team that just needs a guy to go and get a bucket, CJ is better at that. Speaking of guys on on this uh, this article that you wrote, Mike, who were divisive in our war room back in the day, Colin Sexton also appears <laughs> in, in, in this column. And I I want to like this is the trade that you have leading off. This is the last scenario we'll we'll talk about in depth. But you have this leading off your tier three of eh, maybe you just keep Ben at this point. So it's the Cavs would get Ben Simmons, the Sixers would get Kevin Love, Sexton, Dylan Windler, who is. Um, a, a pretty good player when he's healthy, at least in my opinion, pretty good role player. And then a 2023 top 10 protected first round pick. Um, Kevin Love would do a lot of cool things for the 76ers, just being the floor spacer, the I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to shoot it three point shooter if he's open. Yep. 
I, I, I still, I still like Colin Sexton. I, I'm still a pretty big Colin Sexton guy, but I think I, I, you, you give the impression that you're not necessarily a Colin Sexton guy. I am, but I think you and I would agree in the sense that I don't think Colin Sexton is the right guard for the 76ers to have next season next to Joel Embiid. Like I, I'm putting all my chips in for Colin Sexton to continue to develop for the future. But right now, he's not that same playmaker as like a C.J. McCollum. He has virtually no mid-range game. Like if you look at all the numbers for any of his mid-range scoring, like they're they're brutal. Um, so he's either like he's either hitting a three-point shot or he's trying to go all the way to the basket. And even when he gets all the way to the basket, some of his finishing can still be questionable. So like I just think that he's one of those guys that I still I still love his fire. I love his competitiveness. I love. Um, everything that he brings to the basketball court on the court, and I would develop him for the future. But yeah, I don't, I don't see him being the right guy for Philly next year. I think 76ers fans would possibly boo him off the floor at, at, at times too. So you have that as like a possible scenario. What's like, what's like your gut check on on that deal? And really, Colin Sexton, why are you not in on Colin Sexton? Well, yeah. So, so let me let me be clear. I would probably defend Colin Sexton to most people, right? Okay. Like, I I hated the way that dra- specifically draft Twitter talked about him during that draft because it's like there is this there is this like fetishization of players who like easily fit into um, into I guess I'm just gonna say analytics like that's probably a, a reductive way of of phrasing it, but like. The, basically people looked at Colin Sexton and then were like, ah, eh, he's a little selfish. He takes too many, he takes too many long twos. Like let's put him 30th on our big board. And it's like, no, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what you should do at all. And a lot of these people like are the same types of people who are unbelievably like unfathomably forgiving of super flawed project three and D guys. Like people who like, would have drafted like Timotei Luau Cabro, like, like second overall, who could neither shoot nor defend. But Colin Sexton, like, has some issues. And so it's like he's a, he's a second round pick. Like, no, that's not how it works. And people look at guys like Colin Sexton and they're like, well, I don't know if he can contribute to a championship team. And it's like, okay, do you think he'll have an NBA career? Because 25% of the players drafted between 10th and 12th in the NBA draft are out of the league in three years. 25%. All right. So if you think that there is less than a 25% chance that Colin Sexton would have been out of the league in three years, that's probably about like somewhere like in that range or above is where he should have been drafted. And in fact, he was right. Like, so I, I am, I will push in his favor for against a lot of people um, whose perspective I just don't understand uh, and, and who I think don't understand that like the league is full of guys like him. There's plenty of Eric Bledsoe's and Reggie Jackson's and guys like that. They exist. They're NBA players. You can't put a guy 30th or 38th or whatever, because you don't like the way that his analytical profile looks. He will have an NBA career. And in fact, he's had a pretty good one. So it, all of that, I, I am very pro con Sexton, but there is an element of truth in everything that those people said about him pre-draft. He is overly, you know, like individually minded and like he doesn't play team basketball. Like there have been really bad reports about 
I don't want to say him in the locker room, but maybe just his play style, right? Like sure. it's, he rubs guys the wrong way. And, and my point was just like, your whole point in trading Ben is to get better, to have better chances of winning a championship. Like Colin Sexton, I don't think does that for you. Uh, and, and there is a very real chance if everything that people say is true about how he is uh, to play with, like I said, if Kevin Love like continues to not be good and Colin Sexton like gets under Embiid's skin, Embiid will be gone in the snap of a finger. Do you think Embiid is going to want to play with Tobias Harris and Kevin Love and Colin Sexton? Like, no, no, no. he'll be no. out of there. Yeah, that that's why I think it would be the wrong deal for for them next year. Certainly, you you want to know what it is about draft Twitter, Mike? That I I have arguments with draft Twitter all the time. People on there. Because for whatever reason, there's like this segment of their population that thinks that if you're not a, like a six five or taller guard as like a lead ball handler, you somehow shouldn't be a point guard. You suck at life. That, that I just like I just get that extremist vibe, and I'm like defending. I've called myself the defender of small guys on so many different occasions. It's 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 absolutely insane. But it's, yeah, it's I, that it's that, and it's just like shot creation in general. I like I just like people just like. People prefer a, a three and D people prefer a three and D guy. Like I swear to God, draft Twitter. If you could get two guys who have like identical jump shots and identical defensive ability, but one guy can create a shot for him, try, at least tries to create a shot for himself and the other guy doesn't, they would choose the guy who doesn't try to create a shot for himself. Like I'm, I'm not going to name names, but this one like sticks out in my head so much. I remember reading a comparison two or three years ago that somebody had compared a draft prospect who they had this person ranked, I think 20th or somewhere in that range. And they said, I think all this guy is, is J.R. Smith. And they had him 20th. And I was like, do, do you mean former sixth man of the year, J.R. Smith? Do you mean NBA champion, J.R. Yeah. Smith? Do you mean J.R. Smith, who 12 of his first 15 years in the league, often, his offenses were better with him on the floor? J.R. Smith, that's who we're talking about? You want to you want to pick him twentieth, like I don't I just don't get it. It's this weird mentality, like you're saying. Like there's like three archetypes that these that, that draft Twitter likes, and like that's it. I, I man, no, I I think I could have said that better myself, Mike. That this is why <laughs> this is why you're on the podcast. This is why we were in the war room together back in the day. This is this is why I could trust you to be on this podcast, my man. Yes, sir. Um, but to, to your point about to, to your last point about Colin Sexton, then I'll pivot to. To, to something else. Um, I, I think we're going to find out this offseason how much Cleveland actually likes Colin Sexton, just mm -hmm. given where they are in the draft, that third overall, if for whatever reason the Pistons take Kate Cunningham and then the Rockets take Mobley, if, if the Cavs have a chance to take Jalen Green at that point, I think that they're definitely going to do it. And if the Cavaliers feel like they're in a position where they have three backward players and they don't think that green can play on the wing or they don't think that like green and like a Coro can play in the front court together with another big and they have to make a move for a guard. They're probably trading Sexton. I don't think that you're trading Garland at this point, especially what Garland showed last year. And I don't know if you agree or disagree on that, but like, I feel like we will find out this off season, how much they actually like Colin Sexton. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Totally. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this the correct comparison here. It might be a little bit it might the situation might end up 
a little bit like Nerland's Noel in Philly, where it like he's the first guy they drafted in the rebuild, and it seems like forever that he's going to be the guy. But then they just end up being bad for so long that they draft better guys at the same position, and then he ends up being the odd man out. So, yeah, I, I definitely could see that happening. It's ironic in the NBA. It's kind of like it, it works in reverse how it would in your normal corporate office, where I feel like if moves have to be made, you're generally keeping the people who have been tenured there the, the longest and you're kicking out the new guy. Well, in reality, in the NBA, that actually works the opposite. Yeah. If a team hasn't seen that something works over a period of time and they have chances to bring in more new guys, they're going to bring in the new guys and they're going to kick out the tenured guy. But it's re- really fascinating how, how some of that works. And that's why the draft's important. But look at, look at that, Mike, everything always ties back to the draft. See, see, <laughs> see how we can do that on this podcast. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. Yes, um, just to finish off this podcast really quick, um, I promise some very general draft discussion. I know you're not deep in the weeds like, like we once were back in the day in the office, but who, who, who at the very top of the draft have you been able to, to catch glimpses of here and there? And who, who does impress you the most at the top of the draft that you've actually seen? I like Cade a lot. Uh, I think Jalen Green is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Mobley, I think, will have a very long NBA career and be a great player. I'm not like as obsessed with him as other people are. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, one I mean, of, I, I, I'm not one of those people either. I'm not. I'm not obsessed with Mobley to take him like first or second overall. I'm not. Right. Yeah, and you know, Jalen Green is, is 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 super raw, but like, I just love. I love this the package, man. I love the skill set there, and he's super competitive and 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 all that stuff. I mean. Um, I remember like, <laughs> I remember like a year ago now, I heard somebody compare him to like, like a very, very young Kobe Bryant. And I was like, yeah. no, I was like, no way. And like, you kind of, if you really squint hard, like you can, like, he kind of looks like Kobe coming out of lower Marion. He's obviously not going to be Kobe, but like he's, he's similarly athletic and uh, similar size and, and all of that type of stuff. So I, I like Jalen Green a lot. He he does, man. They're absolutely shades of Kobe to his game. There's no question when you go back and watch him. The other name that comes to mind to me for Jalen Green, not not in terms of size, stature, and making like a direct one-to-one comparison, because as you and I both know, we throw out comps more for, for shades of, and who's the guy I remind you of? We don't always try to make one-to-one comps, but the, the way that Green can effortlessly score the ball at times with his athleticism, like there, there's some T-Mac type stuff there, too, to, with and him. I think and like, another one of the names that came to mind was like a very young DeRozan. Um, and, and I think that he's probably going to be a better shooter than DeRozan was. I mean, DeRozan never even tried to extend his range to three, and Jalen Green at least shoots threes. So um, just that, when you talk about that type of athleticism and pair it with like what you hear about his competitiveness and the worker that he is, like that is exactly the type of guy I would like to bet on. Um, now we say all this will probably end up being like, goddamn, like Gerald Green or something. But, uh, but hey, you know, those are the swings we like to, t- we like to take. So I really think Houston should take a long, hard look at him. And we're hearing more rumblings about that uh, as you kind of get around the, the NBA landscape. Because, like, we, we see it, man. We, you, you would make the same argument as I would. Though, like, we see it time and time again in the playoffs. You have, if you have two elite shot creators on the perimeter, you have a really good chance of going far in, in the NBA. And as long as Kevin Porter Jr. keeps his head on right and he keeps doing what he's doing, especially towards the end of last year, you pair 
who someone who looked like a mini James Harden at times on the court with somebody like a Jalen Green, if both of them develop properly, that's going to give the NBA really big fucking headaches for a long time. And I just feel like they have an opportunity to make such a special draft pick. It's not that I don't think that Mobley's a, a, a special talent in his own right, but like I I I don't see the the same like. I'm going to take over a game if things go bad. Like I can definitely be your first and second option on offense when shit hits the fan. Like I haven't seen that takeover mentality from him when I'm going back and watching the tape. And if you get a chance to check out more of these guys in depth, Mike, you, you might come away saying the same thing, but like, yeah, that's why, that's why I would rather draft somebody like Cade, somebody like Jalen green. I, I would probably, if it was honestly just up to me, I'd probably take Jalen Suggs over him too, to be perfectly honest. Cause that man is tough as nails. And he, it, back in the day, man, if we were just sitting around the war room talking about some of these guys, like why we love them, Jalen Suggs would get rave reviews from people. Um, if we were, yeah. if they were just sitting around talking about him. So um, those are some of my thoughts, definitely, at the top of the draft. But Mike, this was awesome. I'm so glad that you were willing to, to spend some time with me to, to come on the podcast. Again, at the beginning and then at the end of this podcast here, plug all your stuff again one more time, man, because I don't want anybody coming away from my show and not following what you're doing. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me on. This was, this was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, again, my Twitter is MOConnor underscore NBA. You can read me at Rights to Ricky Sanchez at the Odds Factory, and you can listen to me on WIP, 94.1 WIP here in Philly. Mike. Thank you again so much. And, and, and to my audience, thank you guys so much for tuning into another episode of the podcast. The last few months, our numbers have been quite literally off the charts. We've been exploding. So I can't thank all of you enough for all of your support out there and making any of this possible. It, it really means the world to me. And if you aren't following us on Twitter already, I'm always on there talking about the draft, talking about basketball at Draft Deeper. And go subscribe to this podcast and leave some reviews wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. We have plenty more draft content coming leading up to that fateful day on July 29th and some more NBA coverage as well as we get to talk to more interesting people like the absolutely brilliant Mike O'Connor over here. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week.